I'd like to start an exploration of making choices uh, from the beginning, literally the beginning, Old Testament Genesis. Um, skipping the first couple of chapters, I actually prefer the primal ooze microbiological theory better for drama, et cetera, than <laughs> seven days. But uh, starting with the Adam and Eve story, which I think is the uh, first time uh, we see uh, people taking responsibility for themselves, and as such, um, a wonderful story. You know it, Adam and Eve. Why are you doing this to me? Talking to the microphone. I thought you were, I didn't know whether it was your teeth or I thought spinach on your teeth. <laughs> Remember Shelley Berman and spinach on your teeth? I, I've had that obsession ever since 1961. Okay, thank you. Is that better? Okay. Um, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve live, lived a life of relative ease, uh, bounding around like curious kangaroos, gathering food in God's garden. And each evening, the Lord would take a walk, and he would say, um, you, how you doing? How you all folks doing tonight? And They'd say, we're doing just fine, Master, and they would gather their nuts and their things. Until one day, a serpent uh, begins talking to Eve and says to her, you know, you don't have to live in this drama, you know. You can create your own drama. You guys can be creators. You can make your own garden. Now, I have to warn you, if you make your own garden, you're going to have to suffer the consequences. I mean, you're going to do some things right, and that'll feel wonderful, and you're going to do some things wrong, and you're going to suffer for it. So if you start on this road of running your own garden, there's going to be trouble for you. But you do get to be creators. So we asked him to pass the apple, and we have our first act of self-responsibility. This beginning of choice for humanity is not too unlike the beginning of choice for every two-year-old. It begins with saying no to parents. It begins with saying, I'm me, right or wrong. I'll take the consequences. It begins by a child asserting, I choose to cooperate or not. It's my choice to make. I'm me. I'm not you. Now, like for most of us, for Adam and Eve, there was quite a bit of backsliding. Uh, when God took his evening work, uh, walk that night, uh, they didn't walk up to him and say, uh, well, Lord, we've decided to start our own place and we're going to be moving out and we want to thank you for all you've done for us. Uh, in fact, Adam and Eve went and hid and so when the Lord came walking, he said, hello, where are you all? Adam said, I'm hiding. The Lord said, well, what did you do wrong? And Adam said, how did he know? He knows everything. Four-year-old feels the same way about me, and I love it. <laughs> the backsliding kind of continued. Uh, Adam then basically said, uh, it's not my fault, she made me do it. And of course, Eve just passed it on to the snake. But with fits and starts, uh, self-responsibility was born. And it's been with us ever since. And it is as much of a creative force as we want to make it. And that is what I want to focus on today in making choices. It begins with our choice to be responsible, to be separate, and to lead our own lives. And it's through our choices that we shape the lives that we do have. And I'd like to ask that you take a few seconds here, and I'm going to pause, because all of us are sitting at any one moment um, in the context of all the choices that we've ever made, 
Uh, our life as it is right now is, of course, the sum total of all the choices that we've made, good or bad. And for most of us, there are some choices on our horizon. I know there are many ways of looking at those choices. Some people make them when the crisis comes up, and some people see opportunities, and some of us make them out of frustration, and some of us work out of a certain vision. But there are those uh, opportunities for choices that are there. So I'd like you to take a moment to think about yourself as a person who makes choices and has made choices and is now living those choices and may have some choices in front of you. And if you have a particular choice that you want to think about, uh, you might use it as a point of reference uh, through what I'm going to be talking about today to see if what I'm going to say has any reference to the kind of choices that you need to make. There's so many choices we have to make today. I, I mean, not only in our personal lives, but because of the, just the world consciousness and the world communication network, we're so much more aware now of how the choices that we make in our very lifestyle and our economic system impacts. Um, if I buy a Honda, I have to be concerned with how it impacts on American labor. If I buy a high mileage car, is it going to impact on the, on the uh, pollution? Or how's my boring going to impact on uh, interest rates? Or how is my lifestyle going to impact on um, the southern hemisphere and poor countries, et cetera, et cetera? How is my political action going to contribute to world peace or not? So between my personal and political life, there's just a lot of emphasis on choices. And I wonder, are we individually and as a society prepared to make such choices? I know that I grew up in a family, in a school, and in a church, which made most of the choices for me. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to shape my environment. There wasn't a lot of interest in me shaping in my environment. Mostly it was an interest in me going along. Even my choice to go to college was more of a fulfilling of an expectation uh, than a, a choice. I think that by my uh, mid or late 20s, I'd made only maybe two or three choices in my whole life. I chose to marry Nancy, and I chose to quit my job to become an ethical leader, or train for ethical leadership. Um, but the rest of the cho choices were more going along. They weren't real choices at all. Now I find I make choices all the time. And in looking at the difference, I now realize that I know something more about how to make a choice than I knew before. But I didn't find that my school life or my early life really trained me uh, to make life choices. Um, I could do some experimenting, like deciding whether to take Spanish, French, or Latin, but nothing more significant than that. Uh, much of the experimentation, I think even more today, happens in one's social circle uh, around whether to use drugs or sex or music or cars or something that um, we have more or less total control of because, uh, at least as adolescents, we have some freedom around. Uh, most adolescents, though, are caught in the opportunity to either placate, go along, um, sell out, or on the other hand, rebel, uh, fight it, kick over. And that middle ground of creating something new, shaping something, is there are less opportunities uh, for that, and there's very little training for that. Freedom to make choices depends upon the ability to say yes or no without addiction to habitual drama. The ability to say yes or no. The will to choose is like a muscle. Unless it's well exercised, it doesn't have strength and it doesn't have stamina, and therefore it can't really make creative choices. 
If the choice muscle is not strong, it settles for the easy course rather than choosing something that may be more desirable. Because choose the more desirable means that you have to create it, you have to make it, you have to defend it. It's much easier to rationalize what is than it is to have to make what you want. So it needs a real strong muscle to be able to say yes or no and stand by it. But also making choices is a lot more than selecting between desirable alternatives or undesirable alternatives. Of course, there are always forces outside that limit our choices. If we're going hiking on Mount St. Helens and it has a volcano, our choices are limited. My dream in life is to be a basketball star, but the other guys are bigger and stronger and I can't quite make it. There are real choices in the world that limit us. But many of our choices, and I would say for most of us, most of our choices are not limited by some outside physical limitation. They're limited by some lack of free will on the inside of us. Because we believe we cannot overcome something, we do not overcome it. To say yes or no without addiction, Addiction means, from the dictionary, to give oneself up to habit. Now, most of us recognize some of our addictions. Cigarettes, coffee, food, TV, booze, work. The habit is so strong and easy that we lack the will to do differently, even when we know that it's not healthy. What is a habitual, what is addiction to habitual drama? What's habitual drama? Well, we're all born, of course, with a brain, but with virtually no information in it. As soon as a child is able, he or she begins to explore the world, usually beginning with his mouth, eyes, hands, feet. And if you haven't met a curiosity, the incredible power of that curiosity of an exploring toddler, you can visit me this afternoon and help me pick up my house. <laughs> They are into everything to find out, experiment. Exploration leads to conclusions based upon the world as it is. The child decides, I'm a baby, and I'm very dependent on the power of others. Good decision. But the child also begins to make some false conclusions based on inaccurate, incomplete information and faulty thinking. The child feels, for example, a strong need for attention. My parents do not respond. The child then decides, I can never get what I want. I ought not to ask. People are not very giving. They're fundamentally out for themselves. Therefore, I should ignore my needy feelings and don't expect anything from anyone. Or another example, beginning the same way. A child feels a strong need for attention. The parents always respond. The child decides, I ought never to be denied. If I don't get what I want, I will be severely damaged. People ought to indulge my every request. Children form conclusions very much like bad scientists with too little data, and then they fail to reconsider their conclusions and to verify its application as a generalization. 
The problem, though, is unavoidable. For a human being must map out the world that he or she is going to walk in. Survival for some animals depends on learning how to use powerful legs or sharp teeth or claws or learning some social repetitive behavior as an ants or bees. But human survival depends on our ability to first conceive of a world and then make choices within those conceptions. It is as natural for children to make choices, that is, for the brain to operate, as it is for the child to breathe or to eat. However, those choices are often habituated choices and only sometimes intentional choices. And I want to talk today about the distinction between habitual choices, which are the dramas, and intentional choices, which is creating new dramas. The conceptions of the world that we perceive are like, as I've called them, dramas. They depict who we are in the drama, who the other person is, and what their roles are, and how they interact. Children, they say, are very much like philosophers. They seem really to get the world the way it is, at least the world they live in. A new book by Carl Whitaker with Gus Napier and Gus Napier called The Family Crucible has the following characters, and they're described this way. There's David Bryce. He is a successful and powerful lawyer who's lost control at home. There's Carolyn Bryce, who's shut out by her husband, furious at her daughter. There's Claudia, a rebellious teenager on the verge of suicide. There's Don, the son who thinks his family is moderately lousy. And there's Laura, the six-year-old who sees more than the others do. Well, it's pretty easy for a six-year-old to see more than others do because a six-year-old script or drama is being written right there with the real characters. Unfortunately, the father is probably operating on a drama that is decades old. He still may feel like the young child himself, who suddenly, however, can't get everybody to pay attention to him. Everybody's expecting attention from him. At work, where he's successful, he may have an opportunity to out his adolescent rebellion drama, uh, working hard against authority, striking them dead where they need to be. But at home, he's the authority, and he's the one that everyone's trying to get. His scripts don't quite match. His drama doesn't. The wife and mother of three, unless it's fully understood, unless it is intentionally updated, it's always inaccurate. This inner drama has the power to become real. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not simply an inner drama. It's the one we act out. It's the one that becomes our life. Let me give some examples of how that inner assumptions about who people are and who we are becomes real. Children who do not get, a child who does not get her needs attended to by parents, eventually deprives herself by choice because she believes she is in the same drama she grew up in. Believing people to be not responsive, that's their defined character, people are not responsive, and believing that needs are not important because they're not going to be indulged, which made sense when she was a child. As an adult, she never asks for anything or acknowledges that she has any needs. Therefore, she attracts people who are insensitive 
to needs, doesn't pay attention to needs. And she conditions those who are more sensitive to not embarrass her by bringing up needy things. And so therefore, she lives a lifelong deprivation of her own choice and creation. Example, another example. A child who is greatly rewarded only for being a responsible achiever. She competes to be the taking care of person, the one who takes care of in every situation, because by being that person, she can feel self-esteem. Therefore, she surrounds, <clears throat> therefore, he surrounds himself with unresponsible people, people that he can care for. In fact, responsible people feel like a threat to him. He doesn't know how to reach out for people who don't need him to take care of. People who, in fact, may be trying to take care of him. And so he is surrounded by people who depend upon him. Now, occasionally, out of a sense of desperation, he might dump his responsibility on a friend for this time to be taken care of. But of course, that friend was selected for his inability to take responsibility and is very likely to fail it. And the drama goes on. You see who I am, I'm here alone, the only one taking responsibility. And no matter how I try to make people around me responsible, it's me and only me. And the drama is proved again. You are afraid that your neighbors might harm you. Example number three. You're threatened by your neighbor. Strange people live over there. So you're taking the evenings to walking around the perimeter of your property, carrying a small handgun visibly displayed. Your neighbor, noticing you on your patrols, decides to buy three attack dogs to prowl his property. One night, as you're taking your stroll, the prowl dogs attack you. You shoot one of the dogs. The police come and surround your house and lead you away. That damn neighbor, I knew he'd be trouble. All of these inner dramas have the power to become real because we are doing our best to act out our part. We have the part that we think will work. We are the heroes of these dramas. And so therefore, we act out our part as well as we could, as good as we can. And suddenly, we encourage others to act out their part as well. We select, you know, in behaviorism, they have the, the central idea that um, any behavior that you acknowledge or pay attention to, you are going to be encouraging. And any behavior that you'd like to get rid of, you'd like to you ignore. And so in our dramas, by paying attention to the responses of the people around us that fit in our drama, we draw out and we encourage in the people around us to act out our drama. And of course, we can also find people who fit into our drama because of their own. Thinking of an example of a labor negotiator, management won't give an inch. The manager says, I'm not giving an inch to labor because you guys are just self-serving. You don't care about the productivity or the product or anything. You just care about yourselves. So on principle, I'm not giving a thing. The fact is that everybody knows that this manager is rather selfish and insensitive and is claiming to be on principle. But you can see by his very actions, he's not a very principled person. 
So most of the labor negotiations fight for every inch, every advantage. Get them in any way they can, because if you don't, he's going to get you. But there's a stalemate. And a new labor negotiator is brought in. The new labor negotiator sees the drama. It's selfish, eat or be eaten. And he passes over the drama and decides that he's going to take up the manager on his word. He's going to be this person of principle that he talks about. And so he argues in his own behalf very strong in the issues that he feels strong about. But places where he thinks that labor ought to give for the sake of productivity or for the good of the shop, he gives. And pretty soon the manager is in the position of having to see his own devious ways. And who in this drama now is the principled and unprincipled one? And so in this particular negotiation, the manager decides to come out and, and be also the principled one, to join the drama that has been established by the negotiator. Now, giving up one's drama to create a better one isn't easy. It's a lot easier to stick with the habitual one, where the rules are known and the outcome most likely certain, and you're not very vulnerable to be taken advantage of. We have a continuous opportunity to change our drama. But usually we don't do it, because it's a lot easier to live, even if it's painful, in the drama that we know. Let me give you an example. The, my parents have never been very receptive to my feelings. They pretty much ignored any feeling part of our relationship. And I've been pretty much a good daughter in that I have um, not burdened them with my feelings. The other day, though, an outrageous thing happened. I called them up to tell them that Harry and I are getting a divorce. And they said, great, come on over, we'll celebrate. We never liked Harry. I couldn't believe it. I mean, you don't expect that from your parents. I mean, where's the compassion? I mean, don't they understand I have some grieving to do? I mean, if you can't go home to your parents, who can go home to? At this point, the daughter has a choice. I can use this as further evidence to feel more distant from my parents, add to my case, or I can go and ask for comfort. I can say, I know you I may think I need to celebrate right now, but I really need to be held. I need to grieve. I wouldn't ask that from my parents. Are you kidding? I mean, if they don't know enough to care about me in times like this, why should I go to them and humiliate myself by asking them for that? And of course, the drama goes on. I'd like to move now towards considering the power of will. Not here, I don't mean the power of thinking. A lot of us know about the power of thinking out of a problem and understanding, and I'm not talking about the power of thinking. And a lot of us know about the power of feelings. You know, passion can really be a powerful influence on ourselves and life and people. I'm now 
talking about the power of will, separate from thinking and separate from feeling. The power of will is to choose to unleash what happens when we take responsibility for having been in a habitual drama. The choosing habitually always goes on. We are always creating. Even when I choose to be destructive, it's an act of creation, which I'm choosing. If we blow our civilization up with a nuclear war, that piece of destruction will be the ultimate creation the human being has ever created. Considering the amount of technology and millions of people have been involved in creating for us the ability to blow up the world, what an act of creation. It would be a marvelous, marvelous monument to our civilization that we could actually create the destruction of our planet. There's no way to get away from creation and choice. It's always being made, even if it's destructive. If I'm being bullied, if I'm the victim of somebody, I'm at this cocktail party and he's just bullying me around, I'm choosing to be that victim. I'm choosing my response. I'm choosing my response. And maybe I don't know a better response. That's true. Maybe I don't know a better response. But I'm still choosing the one I have. And to take the power, the responsibility to know that what I'm creating is what I choose, I then have the power, the will, choose something different. Maybe not now. The key here is when I take responsibility for the fact that I'm a chooser, at that moment, I have power to choose something different. It's self-responsibility. Let me give you an example from a psychiatrist named Peck who wrote The Road Less Traveled, an excellent book, by the way. He gives us an example of when he's a therapist on Okinawa dealing with service people. He's been, he's been sent an alcoholic. This is an example of not responsibility and the trap of it. He says, there's nothing to do in Okinawa but drink. Do you like to read? Yeah, I like to read. Why don't you read? Ah, it's too noisy in the barracks. Why don't you go to the library? It's too far away. No further than the bar, is it? Well, it's a crummy library. What about fishing? You like the fishing? I love fishing. Why don't you go fishing? I have to work all day. Why don't you go night fishing? Eh, no one to go with at night. Hey, listen, I know several boats and groups of guys that go out regularly at night. Let me introduce you. Listen, I'm too tired. I've got to work all day. I hear you saying that there are other things to do in Okinawa. But what you'd like to do most is to drink. No, I'm not saying that. It's this island. It's going to drive anybody to drink. So he's trapped. The ancient Greeks, classical Greeks, understood this dilemma of habitual drama and the need to take responsibility, the need to take some intentional choice. They understood this incredibly well. The, I want to tell you the story of the curse of the house of Atreus. It is a favorite story. It was uh, developed by maybe almost a dozen of the Greek playwrights. And so, so many nuances and characters of the story were developed that there aren't any cardboard figures in it, hardly. All the people are many-dimensional. And in each one, you can see the drama. Now, in this Greek drama, as in all Greek mythology, the, the 
gods represent the the psychology or the philosophy of the time. I mean, all of the urges for justice or love or guilt or greed are represented in the gods. And the relationship between the gods are the appropriate relationship as they understood it, between justice and love and greed. And you had to live by the rules of how, those, how the gods interacted. And thereby, if you did, you kept your greed and your love and your justice in line. And you violated them, though. You were subject to the penalty of the gods. Literally, the furies would torment you with whatever, guilt, envies. Curse of the house of Atreus began when Atreus presumed himself to be more powerful than the gods, more powerful than the laws of the gods. And he put his will above the will of the gods. And so he and all of his family for the generations to come were cursed. And I want to tell the story of Atreus, Orestes, I mean, Orestes, who broke the curse. When he won the throne, his brother was very jealous. And so his brother seduced his wife. Now, the king wasn't going to stand for this, so he had a grand banquet, and he invited his brother to be the guest of honor. And he served him a very unusual meat and delicacy. And at the end of the meal, he provided a grand platter. And when the top of the platter was taken off, there were the heads of his two sons. And he announced that the flesh he had eaten at his meal was the flesh of his own sons. In later life, Atreus' uh, nephew, the, uh, his brother's youngest son, killed him. And the curse went on to the next two brothers. Now, one of the brothers is Agamemnon. Agamemnon's brother was married to Helen. And you remember Helen who's abducted and causes the Trojan War. Well, Agamemnon decides to take responsibility for the Trojan War and to win back Helen. So he marches off from his uh, queen and his kingdom and his two children uh, to win back Helen. While he's gone, his queen um, sends his son um, Orestes into exile and um, puts Electra, the daughter, under surveillance, takes a lover, and installs him as the king. So when Agamemnon returns, he first thing back from the Trojan War, he's been gone seven years, what does he want to do? He wants to take a bath. And in his bath, in his, in his bath, um, his uh, wife, the queen, throws a net over him, and the lover stabs him, and his wife beheads him. Now, you might at this point say, poor Agamemnon. But think about it from the queen's point of view. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very one, all these characters are really not one-dimensional, and I'm, I'll just flesh out a couple for you. Because from the queen's point of view, you know, she's got this husband who decides uh, that he's going to trudge halfway across the then-known world to rescue the beautiful young wife of his brother. He's gone seven years, and when he comes back, he comes back with, um, who does he come back with? Um, Cassandra. Not an unbeautiful, unyoung woman either. And so here she is. She's in charge of this kingdom while he's gone. He doesn't know if he's ever going to come back, who he's going to come back with. And so she chooses a new husband. That's not so unreasonable. Each drama, as you study it, Agamemnon's drama, his killing makes total sense within the drama that he acted out. And each person in these dramas, although they intersect in the most, intersect in the most horrible ways, each of their lives makes sense in terms of crime and justice and cruelty. But all of this is left to Orestes. And he has an awful decision to make because there are two rules that he has to live by. One is the son must avenge the death of his father by killing his father's murderers. 
And the second one is, thou shalt not kill your mother ever. <laughs> so he and Electra agonize. Electra says, get her, get her, get her. <laughs> and so he does. He kills his mother. And then he is tormented. He spends years roving across the country, tormented by the Furies. And finally, he's been mad for years. He says, I must put an end to this. I have suffered enough. And he asks the gods for a hearing, for a trial. And Apollo himself defends him. And Apollo tells this whole story in much more gory detail than I have told it today. And ends by saying, we the gods have created this awful dilemma for Orestes. He should not be made to suffer this penalty forever. And Orestes jumps to his feet and he says, no, that is wrong. It is not the gods who created my dilemma. I created my dilemma. I had a choice. I could have used my power to become king, to perhaps punish my mother. But I did not have to enter the drama. I did not have to continue the curse of a house where cruelty is an excuse for cruelty. And we're driven by forces outside of our own choice. I had a choice. And the God said, far out. This is the first self-responsible guy we've had in here in a long time. And they converted, not only did they get rid of the Furies, they, tra they translated them into Eumenides. And from then on, he had the same insight, the same insights of drama that tortured him before he now had as an ally. He could now see his drama and the drama of other people, and he knew now the power of choosing a drama that you know the outcome of, and it's a good outcome. The power to be free of addicting dramas, the power to objectively observe drama's outcome, the accuracy, to see the accuracy of your character portrayals, the power to fit the drama to the situation as it really is, that's the power of will, the power of truly making choices. Now, in drama, Will is subjugated to feelings and to thoughts. Inner drama is easy because it's familiar. It doesn't really take any intentional will. There's no new behavior needed. Dramas are repeated year after year after year. Different people, different scenes. There's no independent action. All the other characters have their roles. We know what everybody else is going to do. There's no new learning. I have a lot of pain in my dramas, but there's not much risk. I know who I am. I'm the victim. I don't have any responsibility for creating this. I can't stop it. You guys beat me up every time. You make me do these addresses month after month. It's your fault. I have to go through this. There's no, you know, it's awful, but I can't do anything about it. In a drama, even the powerful people don't have any real choices because they're, really one, they're only one-dimensional characters. They're trapped by their own beliefs about what they can do. They're trapped by their own passions. They don't have a real choice. The people in your drama don't have any will to do anything different. The risk of choosing, this is the risk of choosing. The risk of choosing is that it respects the other person to make a new choice, a creative choice. It breaks the drama. If I break the drama, you might break the drama. And what are we going to create? We don't know what we're going to create in our next drama. And that is scary. The negotiator doesn't know if he has integrity. 
whether or not he's going to be taken advantage of by the other side, whether or not he's going to have the strength to take his position and stand for it. Is he going to get hoodwinked? Isn't it better to know that you're at loggerheads? How do we make intentional choices? How do we actually do that instead of being part of our habitual? It's getting late and I decided that I've been talking faster and faster and faster. Let me take a break here and slow down. Excuse me. Okay, how do we make intentional choices instead of just following our habitual choices? Well, the power to do so is in the power of asking. It's asking for what you want. Asking for what you want is an astounding power. Mostly we don't ask. Or mostly we don't even clearly figure out what, what we want. To focus on what I want is to engage this power of choosing. But what if I don't get it? The will to decide what I want is a separate, ask, a separate act. To ask for what I want is an act of strength. Even when I'm what I ask for it and I get it denied, even when I don't get it, the fact that I ask for what I want is strengthening, it's exercising that muscle. Asking for what I want persistently means that I don't have to say no all the time. I can say, I don't have to say no all the time because I can say yes. And if it becomes overburdening, if I don't want to say yes next time, I can suddenly say, hey, you know what I want? I can always ask for what I want. We talk a lot here about, the, in the ethical society, in adult education particularly, about seven times asking. If you don't, aren't willing to ask something seven times, you really don't want it. The reason that you need to ask for something seven times is the first time you ask, you know, you get a rebuff or you get a no, and you know, well, I didn't really want it anyway. But in fact, the person needs to access their own drama. They have to go through their own feelings about what it's going to cost them or mean to them or whatever that they give you this. They have to go through their own thoughts, their own beliefs, their own fears, their own doubts in order to come down to making a real decision. And if we're unwilling to stay there and ask and know what we want, we need to be able to, to say, this is what I want, and stay in that place, whether or not we get it, or whether we get an easy response. Just, I want that. You may not want to give it. That takes willpower. Now, the, the intentionality of asking oneself, excuse me, intentional asking oneself is a very powerful form of exercise. It's a meditation. And I'd like to describe this meditation and ask you all to try it for a minute or so. I find that this particular exercise is um, an incredibly effective mental exercise. It's probably the, the most important decision-making tool that I know about. It goes this way. It begins by not thinking about what's possible. That has to do with the realm of ideas. Forget what's possible. Forget what's desirable, what's likely. So, forgetting about what feels good. That's another realm. That's the realm of feelings. We're talking about here the, the realm of intention or want or will. And the question is, in any one of these choices, you may want to pick a choice that you thought of earlier. In one of these choices, what do I want? I want to be healthy. I want to be more creative. I want to open my heart. I want to love more deeply. What, what, is, it, what is it? Whatever you want. And by mouthing the words, saying it, saying it to oneself, I want to open my heart. What happens is the feelings and the thoughts, that is the drama, answers back. And we begin to get our resistances. 
If I open my heart, I'm going to have to give up being cruel, and there's a lot of pleasure being cruel. That's a consideration. If I open my heart, what are the fears that might come? What are, what, are, what are the old hurts that are there? You know what happened to me when I did 18 years ago? All the old hurts will come up. All the self-doubts about how I can't keep it open. So as I say to myself, I want to open my heart. All the fears, all the old hurts, all the doubts, all the alternative gratifications, and then maybe even some of the preparations that really need to be done. Some of the learning that has to happen, or the conflict that has to be worked out, or the time schedule that has to be changed. Finally, those will come up. I'd like to try this. Try this exercise together. Putting yourself in a comfortable position. Sit in a chair, feet on the floor. Move around until you're relaxed and comfortable. And then choose something that you want. Anything. Something that you've been hoping for, something that you would like. And once you have found that, it may take you quite a few seconds, a minute or so to find that, ask for it. I want. And after you've asked for it, notice what ideas or feelings thoughts, images come into your mind. Come into your mind as if in reaction. And make note of that image or that thought or that feeling. And then ask again, I want... And continue that process for seven times asking. And at the end of which, you will have a sense, a pattern of the kinds of feelings and thoughts fears and doubts, old hurts, ideas and images, which are the resistance to you getting what you want. So begin it by finding what you want, asking for it, noticing the resistance, but continually asking. Let's take some time now. To make intentional choices, we repeat our old dramas throughout our life. Each time there's an opportunity to act creatively, however. At every moment, we have the power to choose. Utopia is always now. It is in any moment that we can choose to choose. But it takes exercise to strengthen one's will, to strengthen one's habit to believe in oneself as a chooser. We need a safe environment to strengthen our choosing muscle, to practice. That's one of the things that the Ethical Society attempts to be. Especially in our adult education program, we attempt to provide an environment where we can see our habitual dramas and practice intentional choice and strengthen our choosing muscle. Inspired by the insight of William James, who said, the greatest discovery in our generation is that human beings, by changing the inner attitudes of their minds, can change the outer aspects of their lives. For closing words, I'd like to read a quote which I've selected for two reasons. One, that it demonstrates the elusive but prevalent noted notion of um, habitual drama 
that we continually act out regardless of the reality. But second, as a thank you to Nancy Montagna, whose thinking is in this address, as it is in all my addresses, and whose drama flows through my life. This excerpt is from a short story called The Illusionless Man and the Visionary Maid by Alan Wheelis. Once upon a time, there was a man who had no illusions about anything. On Sundays, he walked in the park, threw bread to the ducks, dry French bread, stone hard, would stamp on it with his heel, gather up the pieces, and walk along the pond, throwing it out to the avid ducks paddling after him, thinking glumly that they would be just as hungry again tomorrow. His name was Henry. One day in the park, he met a girl who believed in everything. Her name was Laura Bell. And when she saw a bearded young man in the park, alone among couples, stamping on the hard bread, tossing it irritably to the quacking ducks, she exploded into illusions about him like a Roman candle over a desert. You are a great and good man, she said. I'm petty and self-absorbed, he said. You have suffered, she said. I see it in your face. What you see are the scars of old acne shining through my beard. I could nev never give up chocolate and nuts. You're so wise, she said. She talked about love, beauty, feeling, value. He talked about work, death. She came back to love. They argued about everything. They differed on everything. They agreed on nothing. And so she fell in love with him. But he, being an illusionless man, was only fond of her. Our partaketh mainly, he said, of body chemistry. We have a unique affinity, she said. You're the only man in the world for me. He said, you are one of no more than five or six girls in this county for me. It's a miracle we met, she said. I just happened to be feeding ducks, he said. She wanted a wedding in a church with a dress of white lace. So they were married in a church. I'm so happy, darling, so terribly happy. Now we'll be together always. In our community, he said, and for our age and economic bracket, we have a 47% chance of staying together for 20 years.